Welcome back to another edition of Sports Life Balance. This is episode nine, season three. What I felt after the bomb went off, I felt very sure that I had died. But here I am about to pass over and figure out what happens after you die. And I was kind of excited about that. But then I didn't, obviously. I came back and uh, then I began began this journey that I'm on now. But I remember waking up in the hospital very, you know, within a matter of a week or so, feeling like relieved almost. I'm so happy to be alive. I'm so happy to be back. And that feeling hasn't gone away. It sometimes gets trumped on by the day-to-day stresses of trying to make everything work and being an athlete and being a husband and being a father and all that stuff. But but I have this kind of superpower now where I'm just so happy to be alive. And every day I just recognize how precious every moment is because it's a moment that I might not have had. That's blind Paralympic gold medal winning triathlete and swimmer Brad Snyder, recalling the moment his life was changed forever on a battlefield in Afghanistan. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Sports Life Balance. Growing up in Florida, Brad was driven by two big passions, the water and the U.S. Navy. So naturally, he became a midshipman at the Naval Academy, while also voted captain of the Navy swimming team. Brad was deployed on his first tour to Iraq as an explosive ordnance disposal officer, but it was on his second tour of Afghanistan that an improvised explosive device, or an IED, blew up in front of him, his face taking the brunt of the impact. After countless surgeries and months of rehab and recovery, Brad found himself once again pursuing his childhood passion. Back in the pool and training toward a new and previously unimagined destination, the 2012 London Paralympic Games, where exactly one year after he was wounded in Afghanistan, Brad struck gold. Brad, I'm talking to you. You're you're in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, and tell me about what you're up to. And by the way, was that was that uh, Mr. T in the background yeah. that I heard? Mr. T's a, a guest on the podcast today. Mr. T's my uh, guide dog. He actually guides me to and from school where I'm coming or I'm uh, doing this podcast from. And he doesn't necessarily like it when people knock on the door or walk by the office door. So lay down, buddy. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, Mr. T in a, in a little bit. But you mentioned that you're uh, you're you're in Princeton. You're at school. Um, tell me about what you're up to out there. So I'm starting my third year as a PhD candidate here at Princeton's School for Policy and International Affairs. I started this program two years ago with the intention or the idea of kind of pivoting my career into academia. Mm. And my goal job is to go back to the Naval Academy and teach in the leadership and ethics department. And so uh, my research interest is uh, preeminently military ethics and that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, and I'm, I'm assuming so military ethics that also has, uh, does it have a lot to do with the things that you have learned um, throughout your athletic career and uh, both pre and post um, injuries? Yeah, I think... In roundabout ways, uh, I think my goal certainly is to draw from my experience and empower leadership, empower leaders, especially at somewhere like the Naval Academy, where we're very leadership centric, the idea of going out into the military and and doing what we need people to do to ensure our security. Um, I think there are a lot of lessons learned from both sports and, um, you know, from the ethical domain that 
enable us to make good decisions, lead people in the right direction and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I'm a very virtue centered person. And I think there's a lot of virtues that uh, you can pull from sports that are super important in the leadership domain. Absolutely. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, and that's, of course, one of the big, broad topics that I try to delve into on Sports Life Balance. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, tell me a bit about uh, growing up um, and your early influences, I guess, mostly in Florida, correct? That's correct. Yeah. We lived in Colorado Springs for a little bit while I was in early elementary school, but predominantly I grew up all over Florida. Um, as far as my early influences, first that comes to mind was my grandfather. Mm. Uh, when, when I was really little, my grandfather was building an area for his, uh, for my grandmother and him to retire to, as many folks do. They had lived in Michigan for a long time and were going to re- retire down in Florida. So he was building a house when I was two or three years old, which is right around the time when my brother was born. And due to the fact that my mom and dad were both working at the time and, and you know, you're about to have another kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather. Um, I didn't see it the way that I understand it now. It's like my grandfather was helping my family out, but I saw it as this really this real treat to go hang out with my grandpa and help him go from place to place and you know get the things that he needed to work on the house that he was building. That ended up being a, you know, our grandpa and grandma's house we used to go to all the time. Uh, So when I was really young, I came to understand that my grandfather was this really amazing guy. Everyone really liked to sit down and talk with my grandpa. And he was just really nice. He was a man about town. And, you know, you know, everyone carried his or everyone respected him a lot. I came to understand later on that my grandfather was a World War II veteran. He had served in the Pacific Fleet uh, during World War II. He had been really badly injured. Um, he spent four years in the hospital recovering from injuries he sustained in a plane crash. Oh, my God. And all four of those years he spent hitting on his nurse who <laughs> thought he was a sleazy sailor and wanted nothing to do with him. And eventually uh, he w- he kind of won her over and that became my grandmother. So, you know, these are little stories that I learned along the way that just kind of crept their way into me. Like I just yeah. people ask, why did you join the Navy? I you know, my relationship with my grandfather and my grandmother just kind of made that a part of me before I really made any kind of decision. I just mm-hmm. always knew I wanted to join the Navy. And you were you were also, especially once you started swimming, I understand, um, in your book, Fire in My Eyes, uh, you describe how your father um, gave you many lasting lessons um, that, mm-hmm. you, that you carry with you today, such as, um, you know, about winning and failure and hard work and all of that stuff. Tell me a bit about your dad and the lessons that he left with you. Yeah, my dad was a relatively intense fellow and there was a lot of things that uh, that growing up, I, I didn't really fully understand. And sometimes I'd get frustrated with an, an example being like playing catch with my dad, playing baseball catch. My dad would, every time we'd play catch, he would always, he would critique every throw. He would critique every catch. There was like a technique. Now, I never played baseball. I never Mm -hmm. did any. I never played Little League or anything like that. But to my dad, it was important that even if you're playing catch in the backyard, you do it right. There's a right way to catch every ball. There's a right way to field every grounder. There's a right way to catch every pop fly. And he had a language and a, and a framework, and this is how you do it. And every time I'd catch the ball, he's like, you know, you got to make sure you get underneath it or, you know, get in front of that grounder or whatever else. Sometimes I thought to my dad, like, why? Just like, ease up, dad. We're just playing catch. <laughs> but like my dad was very, very disciplined about if there's a, 
if there's something worth doing, it's worth doing right. And there is a right way to do everything. And that we carried into the water. My dad was very, he was a very astute observer of how people were swimming and what were different technique things that needed to be done. And how does this person do that set and yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, so that's lesson number one. And I think the other thing that I would, I would say that I learned from my dad was there was kind of a warrior aspect of sports mm. that my dad imbued in me. I remember one time I had like a really great, I was a miler for a long, long time. So, and you know, you know, swimming well enough to know that like the mile is always in between sessions and there's like four people there. And, you know, so, but so my dad was always one of the four people in the stands watching the mile and I'd swim the mile and I had this really great duke it out race one time, like lap for lap with a guy for um, for an entire mile. And we came in and I don't remember who won. In fact, I think I lost, uh, but it was, a you know, within tenths for an entire mile. Yeah. I'm huffing and puffing afterward. And my dad comes over and he's like, don't show him you're tired. And I was like, what? He's like, don't show your competition you're tired. You don't want him to know that that took a lot out of you. You want next time you race him, you want him to think that you, you've got him next time. And like, I remember thinking, looking at my dad, like, you're nuts. Like, why would you do that? But it was like this intensity to him about, you know, you, this is all, it's a battle. Like going into the mm -hmm. mile is a battle and you're going to battle every lap. And when you're done, you stoically get out and you're just ready for the next battle. Not like it was a race or anything. And I started, that stuff started creeping into me too. And I started practicing that way. I started racing that way. There was always a mental game to it. And I, I started to like that. And it really crept into who I was as an athlete. Right. And you, you mentioned that there was a military aspect of the way that you, you were raised. And as you mentioned, that you went to the U.S. Naval, Naval Academy after you finished uh, high school. Um, you're basically leaving everything that you know behind at home when you, when you did this. How, how did you feel when you, first decide, when you first left for Annapolis, Maryland? Well, like I said, I think I always knew that joining the military was a part of me. And so for for me, leaving home was not wasn't it's not that it wasn't scary, but I think that's what I was looking for. I mm. wanted to be scared. I wanted to be uncomfortable. I wanted to go on an adventure. I wanted to go somewhere and do something that had meaning and be a part of something big. And I had wanted to go to the Naval Academy for a long time by that point. And so when it all started happening, when I left home, you know, I flew to Annapolis and I remember the first, the, the last night out I had in town before I became part of the military. And I remember that being a really special thing. And uh, I was, I couldn't wait. I was really excited. Now that said, it was an odd time, you know, it was immediately following uh, the 9-11 attacks, mm -hmm. you know, and that happened in 2001. I, I showed up that next spring. So as you might imagine, the Naval Academy was under heavy guard and there were Marines with machine guns facing outside of the gate when you drive on to the Naval Academy. And there was this feeling of uncertainty about, you know, the war on terror was just getting started at that point. And none of us really knew or understood what that meant. But all of us wanted to be a part of it. We wanted to serve. We wanted, you know, there was a galvanizing effect of those attacks. And I did feel very prideful that I was a part of it, um, though after a while of being at the Naval Academy, it's like basically just a student wearing a uniform. I felt like, well, what am, how people would say, thank you for your service. I'm like, I'm not really doing anything. <laughs> I just go to class. <laughs> um, but I, I, again, I was very prideful to be a part of that adventure at that time. Well, thank you for your service. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> um, but um, so tell me about that first. I guess you said you went over in spring, but 
I remember my first swim meet out of state. I was 14 years old, and it was at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Yeah. And I remember very clearly, and I, I was not, my, both my grandfathers were in World War II, but I was never really had aspirations to join the military myself. So I remember the plebes, walk, quote, walking in squares. Mm -hmm. And it was just endlessly fascinating to me that all these plebes, you know, walking at right angles everywhere they went, following, I guess there's a grid in like, mm -hmm. that, they're, that they're supposed to follow. And it just the, the regimented nature of it was fascinating to me. Tell me about your first experiences um, that summer. Well, I, I, first I want to back up a little bit and say we have a, a shared sort of experience in that regard. I mentioned that we lived in Colorado Springs when I was really little. And one of the things we used to do was to go to Air Force Academy football games. And I remember being up there in the stands with my dad with our binoculars. And he would say, you know, every time they score a touchdown, all of the plebes are going to go down and do push-ups. And I remember being a little kid thinking like, wait, so like getting punished because they got they scored like <laughs> what that doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, so I think my initial fascination with sort of the military and that it does seem odd, you know, the things that they do, the push ups and the running the squares and all that stuff. You know, why would you do that? It, what's the whole point? Um, and I think that, you know, when you get there and you do that sort of indoctrination, there is a whole bunch of. The very first day is so scary because they're yelling at you for stuff that you're like, why would you get so upset about this? That you know, they would ask you a question and you say, I don't know. And they're like, that's not how you're supposed to answer that question. And I said, Well, how how do you want me to answer the question of I don't know? I, I don't know. I don't know how to I don't even know how to say I don't know. So that's very unsettling. It's very scary. And then after a while, maybe after day one or day two, you realize that they're just they're just it's just a game. They're inducing stress to show you how to deal with stress. They're oh. showing you how to be disciplined to be to show you how to be disciplined. They're showing you they're doing they're taking away your liberties and your freedom so that you know and understand what your liberties and freedom are. And once you start to understand that framework, it starts to make a lot of sense and in fact, you start to like it. You like the structure, you like the running the squares, you like the the nice haircuts and all that stuff. Or at least I did uh, for a long time. I, you know, just really rapidly fell in love with the military and the and the structure of it all. And I, I really did thrive in that environment. And honestly, like having left it in 2013, most vets, I think we spend the rest of our lives kind of trying to hold on to those times and hold on to those practices and hold on to that structure because it's meaningful for us. And I think it's something that will never, you know, never you'll never leave behind, really, I think. I also imagine that um, there is a big teamwork element of it, especially with the stress where you have a number of people in the exact same position as you who you could can lean on. Um, you're not all completely alone, in other words. Um, what's the importance of teamwork and how did that kind of transform you? Yeah, there's no bond like the bond that you have through shared hardship. And, I, you know, I think... We probably both can look back in our backgrounds and some of the it's funny i think when you reflect on an athletic career especially something that uh, ends up at, at the podium level you think the podium is the pinnacle moment but i don't think that's always true and i look back on some of the best moments i had in sports and it's you know the mile in the afternoon where four people were in the stands and you have a duke it out battle with someone or 
I remember one morning, the the longest practice I think I ever did was 16,000. And I remember that Saturday, it was a four hour practice. And it was me and my teammate, Robert, who did the whole 16,000. And like, we had to take breaks to eat. And then they had pancakes on the pool deck afterward. And you're like, that was just, that was amazing. That was the best. Uh, and I think that like the bond that I had then with Robert for life after doing that 16 mm. grand was like, I, I'll, you know, we're, we're best friends for life because we went through that experience together. The same is true when you go through indoctrination at somewhere like the Naval Academy with that initial platoon of people, like you always remember those people because you were in the trenches, you guys suffered together and you supported each other. And, you know, I think you look back on something like that, like, would I ever do 16 grand by myself? Probably not. I mean, some people do. Some people have that kind of uh, ability to push themselves in that way. But I think every time that I've ever done something really that I'm proud of, there's always someone next to you. And you always look really fondly on that person and say, wow, isn't that great that we did that thing together? And, you know, we got through that and we got through that because we were next to each other, you know, that sort of thing. I, I love that bond. And I think it's one of the things that makes the military so, spe so special, you know, that the notion of the band of brothers, the, the, the familial bond or the, the love that you have for someone that you stood shoulder to shoulder with in really tough, chaotic or difficult times that there's no bond like that. You know, it's really something special. Yeah. And, and uh, as you, as you say that I could, I could relate, I'm thinking back to my time um, as a collegiate swimmer, my coach, uh, Skip Kenny was in the Marines in, um, mm. in Vietnam. He was a sniper in the Marines and, and his, he, he, I, I think philosophically he was very much shaped and formed. His coaching style was shaped and informed by his experience as a Marine um, and, sure. in, and in war. Um, so I completely relate to those, um, those teammates who uh, we have uh, metaphorically that you're in the foxhole with, that you're mm -hmm. suffering day to day, day by day, year by year with a shared goal. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's a, it, it's, it's a transformative element of my young adulthood, uh, was collegiate swimming and yeah, having those sure. teammates. Yeah. I frequently say, uh, I've been asked, you know, what is a more like formative leadership experience that you might've had, you know, having had the opportunity to be an elite athlete and also having, you know, military experience. And I frequently always look back to the most formative leadership experience I ever had was captain of my team, like mm. my collegiate swimming team. That was the first time I felt like I stepped into big shoes and actually did something that mattered. And that that team was so special and to be able to, to kind of, you know, it's, it's like I look back on it, like, what did I lead them to do? Like nothing. Like we, you know, we walked out on the pool deck and swam Columbia or whatever. It was like not that big of a deal, but it felt like a big deal and it felt really special and it felt really cool. And so I agree that, you know, the, the, the shared sort of team experience of collegiate athletics is something really cool as well. Indeed, and and I I was I was lucky enough to be co-captain my senior year as well. And but there is a um, in addition to the honor, the great honor of your teammates wanting you to lead, there is a there is a pressure that you need to lead by example. Um, there, it, it's not without pressure, and of course, you you have to carry through that, that honor that you were given, and be a good be a good leader and be a good example. Yeah, I think 
it's interesting about this notion of pressure. It's an important, it's an important node of conversation that we need to have now. And I think, you know, for good reason, this this idea of like mental health has become really, really, really important. And uh, I think athletes like Simone Biles and Michael Phelps have stepped forward and, and called to light really the, the difficulty of being an elite athlete and going to the Olympics or Paralympics and having big sponsors like Visa or Toyota or whatever else behind you that creates this pressure for you to step forward and be Simone Biles or be Michael Phelps or, you know, be that thing that everybody expects you to be. And that pressure can be crippling or it really can be, it can just be catastrophic almost. But at the same time, that pressure in, in many cases is what brings out the best in people. Um, That stress is what makes you know, elite athletics, really cool and really special. Mm-hmm. That pressure and that stress is exactly what we were just talking about. It's like what makes those relationships in the military or on your collegiate athletics team makes it meaningful or makes it special. So I, I think it's important for all of us in the in the discussions about mental health or health and wellness or uh, elite athletics or whatever it is. I think we've we started to create an environment where we say stress is a bad word. Uh, pressure is a bad word or it's a bad thing. It's it's not actually, it's it's really important. It's a really important thing. It's in, in fact, it's a critical thing. Um, that said, we need to make sure that we we go into battle with the right sort of armor on. We need to have the right tools, practices, and procedures uh, in mind before we go to Tokyo and have that level of pressure and expectation. And that, I think that's something what I'm trying to do I want to make sure for sure, like that we're preparing our athletes to go into those environments and that they feel supported and feel ready as opposed to, you know, setting them up for failure and get them, getting them into an environment where they're just simply cri- crippled by that pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very well said. And totally, totally agree. Um, well, you kind of doubled down on this pressure thing that we were talking about um, when you decided to become part of the EOD team or explosive ordnance disposal team. Um, why why did you ultimately decide on that path into your military service? It was kind of a roundabout way. I, When I got to the Naval Academy, pretty quickly they start asking you, what do you want to do? What are you here to do? Mm. And I thought, well, I'm here to be in the Navy. <laughs> what, mm-hmm. what do you mean? They're like, well, no, you do, do you want to be on a ship? Do you want to fly an aircraft? Do you want to do such and such? And uh, I kind of thought, my my paradigm had always been, well, the military just tells you what they want you to do. But here I had this big choice and I really didn't know at first. So I kind of went through this process of elimination. I didn't want to be on a ship necessarily. I didn't want to fly an aircraft. I did see around the Naval Academy, there's there was a group of people who were in really, really good shape. And they were all really, really good leaders. And they all had this little shiny badge right above their uh, their name tag on their left chest. And it was a scuba bubble, we call it, a little scuba pin. And that meant that they had gone to Navy diver school and they had been a, a scuba diver for the Navy. Mm. I thought, that's what I want to do. So I, I went down to scuba school. I came back and I went to the Naval Academy. I said, I want to be a Navy diver. And they said, well, that's great, but we don't do that. The Naval Academy doesn't send anyone to Navy diving anymore. That's it's a it's a niche area of the Navy. We don't do that. The only two parts of the Navy that do any diving are Navy SEALs and EOD officers. At that point, I didn't know what an EOD officer was, 
And many people still don't, you know, it's a mouthful, explosive ordnance disposal. What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. So at that time I was like, I want to be a SEAL. So I started doing this like two, two, three years worth of trying to be a Navy SEAL. And eventually on one of my training trips out to San Diego, I came across some EOD folks and I went to some of their units and I got to do this kind of week long trial uh, of EOD stuff. And I fell in love with it. My, mm -hmm. my first day. I got to work at the Marine Mammal Program on Point Loma, uh, which is, you know, the Navy keeps, uh, trains some dolphins and some sea lions to do certain kinds of tasks for us. Uh, and I got to go out into the ocean with a dolphin looking for mine shapes on the bottom of the ocean, wow. which was incredible. And then the, the second day I got to a, go to a demolition range where we were using explosive water bottle charges to disrupt potential IEDs and improvised explosive devices, which was really cool. And then day three, we got to go to a jump, uh, a, a jump, what do we call it a range or a jump area where um, SEALs and EOD guys were going up in a helicopter and they were jumping out and parachuting down to the ground in the desert there near San Diego. And I, I thought I'm sitting as just a midshipman watching this happen, thinking this is just a regular day at work for these guys. And I thought, man, what an incredible uh, job this is, this EOD thing. Um and in my mind, an EOD officer gets to do everything that a Navy SEAL gets to do from jumping out of aircraft to scuba diving to working with demolition charges. Uh, but one thing I really liked about the EOD community is that my job, my sole mission as an EOD officer is to mitigate explosive hazards, literally to make the world safer. I wasn't out there to kill anybody. I wasn't out there to go, uh, you know, render vengeance on the bad guys or whatever. My my job was just to protect people. And I loved that. I loved the ethics of it. I loved that my job was just to make the world better. I loved that I would get to do some really neat stuff. I, I loved that I would have this really rare expertise in the mitigation of explosive hazards. And um, it was kind of all, all, all she wrote from there. And I, I'm immensely prideful of being a part of that small, very small, but mighty community. And and it was it was very much a need as well. You you mentioned a staggering statistic in your book that in 2007 of the um, 961 Americans killed in I can't remember if it's Afghanistan and Iraq, but of, of the 961 killed, 63 percent of those were at were because of the IEDs. Yeah. Well, in in both theaters, uh, both kind of. Res uh, degraded down into counterinsurgency after really you know really quickly uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan and the waging war by the IED the improvised explosive device is a very cheap and effective way to wage a counterinsurgency uh, and we saw that both in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and it really only takes you know less than a dollar you can make a bomb out of a you know an empty milk jug some fertilizer and some recycled motorcycle parts and so i saw you know, thousands of IEDs in Afghanistan and and then even scarier ones in Iraq, where there were some really highly trained, very smart people working on how to optimize these mm -hmm. IEDs in very scary ways. So, yeah, it was um, a big part of our operations in both theaters and and pro promises to be the same in any time that we get ourselves mingled in a in a counterinsurgency. Um, what was your father's advice before you were deployed? Uh you know, it's funny. I I had a conversation with my dad before I left. So, I, you know, I grew up with the sort of reverence for the military. 
And uh, I'd always wanted to be a part of, you know, my grandfather was part of the greatest generation, the generation of people who got together and, and, and warded off fascism and the Nazis and so on and so forth and made the world better and safer. And I thought, man, I, I, I really hope I can, I can levy my efforts towards something as noble as that. And so when I went to the Naval Academy and eventually was about to be deployed to Iraq, I thought I'm fulfilling that destiny. I'm living up to what I had, you know, had always wanted to be. I'm I'm kind of fulfilling my grandfather's legacy and things like that. Well, I got I, I was about to leave for home and my dad, you know, got really sad. He got really upset. Um and he kind of confided to me. He's like, "I never I never thought of this for you. This was not this is not what I thought of, you know." And now being me being a father, like I kind of get it a little bit differently. You know, when you have a child, you you want to empower them and you want to give them everything that they need to go out and be as happy as fulfilled as possible. But here I was on the precipice of going to a place where it was, you know, it's extremely dangerous and I was doing an extremely dangerous job in an extremely dangerous place. And, and it was not lost on either of us that the potential of me potentially losing my life or getting hurt was very high. My dad was really wrestling with that. And I, I thought my dad would be super proud. Like mm. I great way to go, son. I'm so happy for you. But he wasn't. He was he was afraid for me, I think. We'll be right back with Brad in just a minute. I want to tell you about our partner, Roka. Look, I've been using their wetsuits and goggles and swimsuits for many years. Why? Because they are the absolute best quality money can buy. But Roka also makes amazing eyeglasses and sunglasses, and they're designed for those of us who like to push the limit, but of course want to look good doing it. I know this firsthand because I own a few pairs myself, and they're super light, and they won't ever slip off my face no matter what I'm doing. And listen to this. You can try them on at home. Roka will send you your choice of four frames. You can check them out in the mirror and then pick your favorite. So go to roka.com, that's R-O-K-A.com, and enter the discount code SLB, as in Sports Life Balance. That's just three letters, SLB, and you save 20% on all your orders. And that's for anything on their website. Have fun exploring. And now let's get back to the episode with Brad Snyder. I thought my dad would be super proud. Like, mm. I, great way to go, son. I'm so happy for you. But he wasn't. He was he was afraid for me, I think. And it, it was very unlike my dad to confide that. My dad was a very stoic and tough guy. And to see him sort of break like that really was interesting for me. Um, it, it, it added a, a certain dimension to my service that I, I came to understand that I think when you're young, you look at a poster of like Navy SEAL stuff or EOD stuff and jumping out of planes and blowing things up. And you're like, yeah, that's for me. Top Gun, Maverick, that kind of stuff. But in the real world, you know, you're going to do really dangerous and scary stuff. And it was really my father seeing my father upset was the first time that that crept into my brain of like, wow, I'm about to do something significant and uh, it it's maybe not the way that I had thought it at, at first, and that was interesting to see my dad in that way. Um, and it was a, um, it was impactful. I'll just say that. Yeah, yeah, and and of course, founded in reality, and um, that reality. You, I mean, not long after you were um, deployed to Iraq, you had a very close call mm -hmm. um, with a bombing. Um, very close to you and your teammates. Tell me, mm -hmm. tell me about that and and how 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 what how you reacted to that. Well, uh, we used to 
there were um, in a place like Afghanistan or excuse me, in a place like Iraq, there are detonations more often than you might think. And we had a we had a demolition range outside of the base, and there are people occasionally doing it intentionally, blowing up ordnance and things like that. Uh, but then within a, a matter of weeks of being in Iraq, we came to understand that occasionally you take rocket fire. There's someone out in the desert who's launching rockets at the base trying to trying to shoot at the chow hall or the cafeteria or something along those lines. And the first couple of times that that happened, uh, it was very far away. You can still hear the explosion, but you know, oh, it was they're shooting rockets, but they're not very good at it. So it lands whale away and it's not that big of a deal. Um. So uh, first thing in the morning that day, I, I could hear these sounds and I thought it's, you know, the, I play this game in my mind. It's either someone slamming a door or it's an explosion. And I'll be like, door slam, explosion, door slam, explosion. And I was like, I think that was an explosion. And right as I had thought of that, uh, I heard a rocket go over my, uh, where my, my, like we call it a chew, my little, uh, my mobile, my mobile home, I, I guess is what it's called. Mm -hmm. I heard the rocket fly over my mobile home and it definitely exploded within about 50 meters. And wow. I, my eyes got wide. I, you know, jumped out of my door. I actually bumped into somebody else who was jumping out of their door to get into our little bunker. And, uh, it, it you know, it takes a minute or two to be like, Hey, is everyone okay? And you know, where, where are my guys? You know, uh, Andy, where are you? And Steve, oh, you're over there. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. All right. Well, we, you know, we're, we're essentially first responders to that sort of thing. So we immediately needed to get to our office and get our gear on. Cause we knew we're going to go do the assessment of these rockets. And, uh, that's exactly what happened. We ended up sending out of all of our teams. We took very effective rocket fire that day to our base, but thankfully, by some miracle, there was nobody injured. Uh, we lost. Uh, we went to a an area where a rocket had landed in the courtyard, where there were all these vehicles around where the rocket had landed. And as we were doing our like what we call a post blast investigation, we're sort of doing like you know what cops would do at a murder site. You put out the tape and you do you take pictures and that sort of thing. As we're doing that, you hear this hissing and everyone's like, what's that hissing? And it was the uh, the air was being let out of all the tires of the, all these vehicles oh. that were parked around this area because they had all taken shrapnel and they were just slowly sinking to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I that was uh, on one hand that day was like, wow, that was the closest I've ever been to being targeted by something. And it flew right over my 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 mobile my mobile home. And that could have been really bad. But. Then I, I felt immediately afterward, I felt really gratified that we we did work that day and we were able to gain forensic evidence that was able to point us to who had done it. And, you know, we were able to put that into a database and then we were actually able to find out exactly who had done it. And I believe that that person was apprehended at some point. So there was a feeling of gratification to say, yeah, we actually we did our job today and we were really it was a really close call. But, you know, we, we got to we got to do what we came to do. And, and that was uh, a gratification, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And well, clearly um, your military training, um, it, that's what allows you to get through what has to be would would definitely be mortal fear to anybody else um how was your experience as an how did your experience as an athlete prepare you for being a, sol a soldier in addition to your military training so i think you know going going way back and kind of maybe making a call back to my dad i remember a time where you know I'm getting ready to go or I'm getting ready to start taking swimming very seriously, but I hadn't quite made that jump yet. And, uh, I, 
you remember this as an age grouper. I think you get moved from one group to another at some point. And I got moved from the whatever group to the senior group and the senior group practiced at five 30 in the morning, as well as in the afternoon. And so the first time I'm supposed to get up at whatever for something to get to practice by five 30, I think I told my dad, I think I'm good. I think <laughs> I'm just going to go back to bed. <laughs> and, and my dad was like, he, he pulled a name out, a name of a competitor of mine, a guy I had raced or something. I don't remember this guy's name. Let's just say his name was uh, Steve. And like, do you think Steve is going to practice right now? And I was like, well, he might. He's like, well, what if Steve's practicing right now and you're not? And I'll be like, oh, man, yeah, you're right. I got to go to practice. So like starts there, like, you know, just as a 12 or 13 year old kid or however old I was, you make this decision like I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be dedicated to this thing. I'm going to get into the cold water at 4, 5.30 in the morning to make myself better. And that, you know, every morning for a while is just, I'm going to go and I want to beat Steve. But eventually what that becomes is dedication. It mm. becomes resilience. It becomes this part of your character of every day now, I get up at 5 a.m. and I'm getting up to do something to make myself better. Why? And, you know, when I was 13, it was because I wanted to beat Steve. But now it's just because I want to be a better part of myself. I want to be a better version of myself. Uh, so I think, you know, that sort of stuff, you know, being able to get up and, and hold myself to the fire and, you know, battle through like a set, like back that 16,000 practice or the hundred hundreds or the, you know, these crucible workouts that we all have done. You know, you when when coach writes a hundred hundreds up on the board, you're like, oh my God, there's there's absolutely no way I can do a hundred hundreds. I've never done anything like that before. I've done 20. I can't do five times the longest hundred set I've ever done. Right. But you know what you do? Like you do 10 at a time. And then after a while, you've done 30. And then you do another 10, you've done 40. And after a while, you're at 70. And you're like, I've only got 30 hundreds left. And after a while, you're in the last 10. And then boom, you've done a hundred hundreds. And then once you've done a hundred hundreds, there's like, well, there's nothing I can't do. So I think, you know, sports for me was the sort of playing ground that I started to learn about these nuggets of character that ended up being very important, how to dedicate myself to something, how to be scared of something like a hundred hundreds, but then go and do it and mm -hmm. then learn that I could do it all along. Like I wasn't a fundamentally different athlete after doing a hundred hundreds. I was the same athlete, but that same athlete could do it all along. I just didn't know I could. Um, and that, you know, that challenge loop uh, came to fruition thousands of times when I was in the military. I didn't think I could jump out of an aircraft and boom, I did it. You know, I didn't think I could uh, go downrange on an IED and, and render it safe. And I did it. It's there are these big, scary things that always happen. But, you know, sports kind of gives you the confidence to say, you know what, I there are a lot of things out there I don't think I can do, but I'm not going to know until I try it. And most of the time when I've tried something I didn't think I could do with a little bit of you know, uh, resilience or, you know, not, not giving up, I eventually find a way to do that thing. I didn't think I could do. Does that make sense? Oh, uh, no, absolutely. And, and all of, all of these things that you're speaking of uh, apply to life, any sort of life where, you know, you're trying to do, you're trying to be a good father or mother, mm -hmm. or you're trying to, um, you're trying to excel in your career. Um, mm -hmm. a anything it's, it's that, that way of thinking is applicable to that. 100%. Yeah. And I, having kind of done the same thing in multiple domains, you see the same loop play out a bunch of different times. Uh, like I'll, I'll make a joke about, I had have my, my baby now. And when I was first blind, I remember meeting the, my, a blind mentor was talking to me about 
you know, how he had flown to see me in the hospital and how he was looking forward to getting back to his newborn daughter. This was back in 2011 when I was first hurt. Mm -hmm. And I remember being terrified of two things more than anything else when I was first blind. How does a blind guy get through the airport? And how does a blind guy change a poopy diaper? Uh. And I'm proud to say at this point, I can do both of those things pretty well. I can get through an airport and I can change a poopy diaper. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you also, you know, curiously enough, you mentioned uh, something in your book, um, like, and in Lex, uh, Gillette also mentioned this, is that go ahead, close your eyes and try to put your toothpaste on your on, on your toothbrush. Yeah. And you know, you, you, you mentioned how you struggled with that. And I actually, after Lex, uh, told me, go ahead and try that. I tried it. Of course I made a mess and you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a very good thing to do just to understand what a person without sight has to deal with. But there was a very simple hack that, that somebody told you about of how to deal with this. What was that? You just squirt it in your mouth. This is just put the nozzle in your mouth, squirt, squirt the toothpaste in your mouth. I, I remember being in a blind rehab in the hospital in uh, Augusta, Georgia, when I was first blind in a VA. And I, uh, this fella, this guy named Ron was my blind mentor and he was helping me figure out how to use a computer and how to do PowerPoint, how to do Excel and how to get from point A to point B. And he was teaching me how to use echolocation, like use my hearing to be able to perceive my space and that sort of stuff. So after a couple of weeks of him training me, almost like a blind Miyagi kind of thing, he's like, so what's the, you know, what's defeating you? What, 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 what can I help you with? And I said, Ron, for the life of me, I can't figure out how to get toothpaste onto the toothbrush. And he's like, oh, that one's easy. You just shoot it in your mouth. And I was like, ah, oh, that's it. No more mess. And that's what I've been doing for, you know, 10 years now. You know, sometimes we, we trip over ourselves because we think that a solution is complicated or it's a, a new skill we need to acquire when there, if, if you just think about it so often, sometimes there's a simple solution right in front of you. Yeah, you just exactly. have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of another story. I think this is emblematic. I think people look at blindness and like, oh, you must have some sort of like special skill set to be blind. And uh, I, I'm sad to say that there's no special skill set. It's just like, I have to find out. I just have to do things without being able to see them. It's There's no magic to it. It's just like, I, I, I have to use my hands. I have to lose, use my hearing. So I remember I was in blind rehab again, and I'm working with Ron, and Ron's teaching me how to cook. He's like, what do you want to cook? I said, I want to cook spaghetti. And he says, okay, we'll go into the kitchen. And he says, okay, well, you cut the you cut the sausage open, and you break the casing into here, and you put this into a pan. You put a little, a little olive oil in the pan, and you mix the – yeah, he goes on and on. I said, yeah, yeah, Ron, I know how to cook. How do you cook blind? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The only difference is you just try not to burn yourself. And I was like, <laughs> well, thanks. Like, thanks for the tips. <laughs> uh, I still try not to burn myself. Exactly. Uh, I cook. Um, um, let's, let's, um, let's rewind, um, just a little bit. Um, your second, your second tour, you went to Afghanistan. Um, and that's of course where your life changed forever when you were injured by an IED, um, or, or improvised explosive device. Um, in your book, you superbly, I might add, and quite vividly and quite emotionally, you explain how your life literally played out in your mind in the moments soon after that explosion. Tell me about that. I appreciate you saying that first about the book. That was uh, probably the most important part of the book in my mind. Uh, And largely the reason I wanted to write it, I had spent some time 
speaking about my experiences. And I have found that my life has changed not because I'm blind, but rather because life has a lot more meaning for me now than it did before, uh, which is sort of sad to say because I was 27 at the time. But you know, for me, what I felt after the bomb went off, I felt very sure that I had died. I, I remember, and maybe this was a figment of my imagination, but I feel like I could see still. And I looked down and I didn't see any blood or damage, but I had, I knew that I had been blown up and that didn't make any sense in my mind. I said, I couldn't have been blown up, but nothing wrong. You know, I, there must be something wrong. And uh, I thought, oh, I must have, you know how like when you're playing an old record and it skips over a track, I thought I've skipped over a track. I'm, I'm waiting for whatever is supposed to happen next. And I remember thinking I, I must be dead. And so now I'm just waiting to pass on. And I thought about everything. I just, I don't know why. I think there's that, like the Saving Private Ryan thing at the beginning of the movie, time seems to slow down or even stop sometimes for people in a traumatic environment. So for me, I just had all this time to sit and think about the life that I had lived and everywhere that I had been and all the decisions that I had made. And then I remember thinking kind of like, well, you know, this is it. A, this is what it feels like to be blown up. And then B, here I am about to, to pass over. And I remember feeling for sure that my grandfather was coming. My grandfather was going to be the one to come and, you know, grab my hand and take me across to whatever happens after you die. And I remember for sure feeling like kind of excited, like I'm about to find out what happens after you die. I've read so many books and been through so many sort of spiritual or religious ex uh, experiences and thoughts and ex explorations. And uh, I don't, I've never known. Nobody knows. But here I am about to pass over and figure out what happens after you die. And I was kind of excited about that. But then I didn't, obviously. Mm -hmm. I came back. And uh, then I began, began this journey that I'm on now. But I remember waking up in the hospital very, you know, within a matter of a week or so, feeling like relieved almost. Somehow the pressure was off. I I felt really gratified. I felt I'm so happy to be alive. I'm so happy to be back. I'm so happy to really have the whole, you know, at that point, my, my life's basically a blank slate. Like everything I've done to that point almost doesn't matter because I'm just so happy to be alive. And, and, you know, everyone's really fretting about the fact that I can't see. And my mom's really sad about that. My family's really sad about that. And the doctors are really in a tizzy about trying to get some of my vision back. I remember kind of thinking like, I, you know, I'm just so happy to be here. And that feeling hasn't gone away. It sometimes gets trumped on by the day-to-day -day stresses of trying to make everything work and being an athlete and being a husband and being a father and all that stuff. But, but I have this kind of superpower now where I'm just so happy to be alive. And every day I just recognize how precious every moment is because it's a moment that I might not have had. I can go back very vividly to that memory and think that was the end at that point. And I was happy with that. I was okay with that. But every moment since has been a bonus. It's been special, been really special. Uh, and the reason it's important to me to share that is not everyone's going to 
have that experience. And I hope that you don't have to go through that to feel the specialness of every moment. I, I, I think it's important for me to share this story because I want everyone else to kind of feel that, you know, in me talking about it and then look at your own life and smile and think, man, you're really lucky. You're really lucky to have what you have and to have the relationships you have and to have this moment and the next moment and the next moment because it's a moment you might not have otherwise had. And it's a moment that some other people don't, you know, not everyone made it back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and I, I take it very seriously that I feel like, a I owe a debt of gratitude to those, to those men and women, uh, to make the most of everything I have left and, um, and not look back. Yes. I, <clears throat> having gratitude is very empowering. I, I, I agree. And, it's a great lesson in, in having that gratitude for all the things that we have. Um, notwithstanding, there are things that don't, you know, aren't aren't good in people's lives, but yet there are always something to, there's always things to be gratified about. Um, mm -hmm. In another um, poignant passage in your book, and it's, it's actually some funny moments as well, you describe <laughs> how your family kind of pulled you back into consciousness. Um, and uh, there was a moment with your brother where everybody thought, <laughs> okay, Brad's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I like that moment a lot. Uh, I think a big part of the reason I like that story is it carries with it. You know, I'll never know what my family went through uh, in that because I can only experience the world from my own experience. But I'm sure it's it's a really tough part. It's an under talked about part, I think, of the the wounded veterans story is the, the the difficulty that their family goes through. And it's I think it's probably harder to be a mom, to be a father, to be a brother or a sister to someone who's hurt because there's so much uncertainty and there's so much pain that you don't feel. I think it's like for me anyway, it's easier for me to deal with my own pain than like see my daughter in pain or see my wife in pain or see someone else I love in pain. I'd rather just have it myself because I know how to work it. I know how to manage it. Right. And I think uh, it was really difficult for my family to see me messed up, to see me broken and beat down. You know, I came, I was not conscious when I came back to the US. I was uh, sedated because of the nature of the wounds to my face and to my throat and to my eyes. So when I got off the airplane, my family can't talk to me and they don't know how I'm feeling or is my does my brain still work? You know, there's a lot of misinformation about an injury like that. And I don't think that they knew, am I still there? Am I still okay? And there was a lot of damage to my face and there was a lot of stitches and blood and all that stuff. So I think that their, their reality was like way starker than what my experience probably was. Mm. And so, you know, imagine it from my mom's perspective, she gets this call at five in the morning from some, you know, commander in Afghanistan saying her son's you know, been really badly injured and we're rushing him back. We need you to get on an aircraft as quickly as you can to get to Maryland to welcome your son and yada, yada, yada. And you're getting the updates. Well, is Brad talking? Well, no, he's just, he's sedated and he's got this damage and he's got that damage. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You get there. And I think, you know, finally like I'm stirring and I'm awake, but I have a tube in my throat and I can't talk. And so I, I, uh, ma I made a motion, like, let me write something down and I'll try to pass along a message to my family. And uh, I couldn't write. I was really like, I was messed up. I was on a lot of like drugs and stuff. I couldn't write, use my handwrite and yada, yada. So this this trying to write something to my family didn't go well. 
I ended up getting really frustrated, like very visibly frustrated. And I was grunting and like, oh, because I had this thing in my throat. (laughs) And my brother, who I have a great relationship with, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, Brad, you just need to calm down. And I remember being like really (laughs) mad, like, you you calm down. I'm calm. And I, I gave him the middle finger like, what do you mean calm down? I got something mad, but I was like, I'm not, it, you know, it's, I'm mad at my brother the way that I've always been mad at my brother. Like just kind of like, Oh, come on, piss off that kind of thing. <laughs> so I flicked my brother off and he smiled. <laughs> he <laughs> laughed and he goes, I think Brad's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, was, yeah. uh, it was good. Resilience comes in all different forms. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you you mentioned you mentioned your mom and and how rough it must have been for your mom to, of course, get that news and then your for your family all to see you in such bad shape. But at a certain point in your recovery, you decided that you wanted to do a five k, mm-hmm. um, and I believe with uh, with the help of some nurses, you were able to do that. Tell tell me about that. Mm-hmm. And you, it's fun. To- you were with your mom too, right? Your mom was part of it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And this 5K, uh, I grew up swimming at North Shore Pool in St. Petersburg. It's this really beautiful outdoor pool. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to swim there, but it's really a special place to swim. It's in the basically right behind this historic hotel. It's one of these pink stucco hotels in Florida. It's palm trees and green grass. And it was a very picturesque location. They happen to have a, I think it was like a Halloween themed 5K. Uh, around the time that I was in rehab in Tampa, Florida. And, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, the injury journey, more or less, I, I remember I, I told you, like, I had this feeling of gratitude, like, I'm so happy to be alive. And wow, I feel like I had just died and yada, yada, yada. But meanwhile, everybody around me is really quite devastated about this vision loss. And they don't know, there's a lot of uncertainty. How's Brad going to do this? How's Brad going to do that? And what kind of job can Brad have? What kind of, you know, just contemplating the long-term reality of blindness is not always a really inspiring thing. Like what's, you know, what's Brad going to do? You know, can't exactly be, you know, you can't cut the red wire or the blue wire as an, a bomb tech, you know, if you can't see, so you can't be a bomb tech. You can't do this. You can't do that, blah, blah, blah. I, I didn't, I wanted to sort of engage with that and, and kind of show, I don't want people's pity. I don't want you to be worried about me. I, you know, I was a very, independent, strong, capable person before the fact that I can't see doesn't change any of those things. I want to be independent, strong, capable, so on and so forth. And so I I was really kind of grasping at any opportunity at that point to kind of get out of the hospital room, get out of my hospital bed, get out of this box of you're blind now and you can't really go anywhere. I didn't want that. I did In fact, at that time, I really didn't like the word disabled. I was like, I'm not disabled. I don't want disability. I don't want that. I don't, I want to work. I want to be, you know, I want to get out and find a job and I want to do PowerPoint and Excel and that kind of stuff. And uh, the most natural physical thing that you can kind of do right out of the hospital for me anyway, was running. Uh, I could, I could run. I knew how to run. The physical therapist knew how to run. We went outside uh, and she was like, well, you know, why don't I'll run. And you run and just hold on to my arm. I said, okay, cool. We'll do that. And we ran. We ran around the hospital that way. And we ran around the hospital twice. Then we ran around the hospital three times. And I, I got comfortable running. And uh, I could see like, this is a way that I can get out. And I can show people I'm going to be okay. And that 5K, that's what that was all about. And I went there with my family. And we're going to do a race. And we're going to be amongst the community. 
and we're going to race in my old, you know, in my old stomping grounds in North Shore around North Shore Pool and the, the St. Petersburg Pier. And it was going to be this celebrating the fact that blindness isn't going to put us in a box. We're going to get out of that box and we're going to run. And that's what it was all about. Well, and, and your mother, um, the way it's explained is that she was not necessarily a runner, but she decided no. to do the 5K with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she, I think she was inspired by that. She said, yeah, I'm going to walk the 5k. And I said, okay, great. So we, I ran with two friends of hers, Russ and Nancy. I ran and then I finished and my mom was kind of, you know, coming up around the bench. She's going to come into the finish line. And we went and like, well, we'll walk, we'll walk the finish with mom. So we walked at, back and my mom like got this like really determined voice and was like, we're going to run to the finish. I was like, you sure mom? And I was like, I don't think my mom had run in 30 years or something. She's like, we're going to run to the finish. And I was like, all right. And I grabbed my mom's arm and we ran, you know, probably uh, the last quarter mile or so out to the edge of the, the St. Saint Petersburg pier. And I remember her gasping at the finish line, but she was so happy. It was really a, it was really a special thing. And I, we had all kind of like pushed each other. And then I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that story and how the, how, just the message that you were you were going to get through this, and thank you, mom, and thank you for yeah. your help. But let me help you get through this. And uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That it, it's almost like you were paying your mom back for all that she's yeah. done. And I yeah. really love that. Yeah, yeah. I I I really appreciate. It. it was an interesting experience going through that injury. I think it put a lot into perspective. So you know, when I was younger. I wanted to get out of the house as quickly as possible. Not because I didn't like my house or my parents or my family. I loved them. I love my house. I love my family. I love my parents. But I wanted to go on an adventure. I needed to get out. I needed to be me. I needed to find me. And I didn't really put any thought about how hard that was on my mom. I just, I like, I was selfish, I guess. Like, I need to go do me. But then I realized going through that experience, especially in the hospital, having military people come back and ask me questions there's a funny story. So I used to call my mom from Afghanistan. She said, what do you do in Afghanistan? And not wanting to worry my mom, I said, well, I, I pass out candy to kids, which is true. Mm. I used to keep lifesavers in my pocket. So if we ever encountered any kids, I could give them some candy. And so my mom was like, what do you do? I was like, well, I'm not going to tell her I get on these Chinook helicopters and do assault missions trying to find bad guys and such. Uh, I'm going to tell my mom I give candy to kids. And she seemed to like abide that. She's like, okay, cool. He, and I'm sure if she, if anybody asks, what does Brad do in Afghanistan? She, oh, he's passing out candy to kids. So anyway, I'm in the hospital. I'm all hurt. And I have all these people from the military coming and asking me to tell them about such and this and that, the other thing. And so she is a fly on the wall for all these stories and conversations between me and other military members. And after one conversation of being like forthcoming about, you know, IEDs and mind sweeping and blah, 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 blah. The, my friends leave the room and my mom gets mad and she says, I thought that you said you were passing out candy to children. <laughs> and I was like, well, I was mom. But so, but anyway, I, I share that story to say like, you know, I, I, I didn't really think much about what it might be, to, what it might feel like to be a mother of a person like me going to do that job. It must be terrifying. My, my boy, my young boy, my firstborn child is going to run to this place like Afghanistan. And he's going to defuse bombs in Afghanistan. Why? Why wouldn't you just be a baker or something? <laughs> like, just, but you know, go to art school and you don't go to Afghanistan and defuse bombs. Why would you do that? So I, I, I think going through that experience and see, you know, sort of seeing it through my mom's eyes 
made me kind of appreciate, wow, you know, being a family member of a service member is probably actually harder than being the service member, I think. And I, I really came to understand and respect that. And there was a, some growth. There was a growth between my mom and I through that rehab process, you know, doing the 5K together and learning how to be blind together. You know, my mom, having let me out into the wild once, I came back all blown up. So she's not excited about mm. me going back out into the wild, but I needed to go do me again. So I remember one time I'm cane walking and my mom was kind of hovering like, Brad, look out for this. Brad, look out for that. And I kind of snarled. I like turned around. I was like, mom, you can't do that. Like, you're not going to be able to follow me for the rest of my life telling me to look out for this and look out for that. You have to let me learn to find it. I'll find it with myself, with my stick or my dog. And if I don't, I'll pay the price. I'll bump into something and I'm fine with that. And my mom was like, okay. And promptly I turned around and smacked right into something. <laughs> and my, my mom started getting upset. She's like, you know, you, this is so hard to watch your son bang into things. And I remember thinking on one hand, like I understand her perspective. It must be terrifying. It must be difficult. But at the same time, I need to bang my head up against the wall. Like I need to bump my head so that I'll remember not to go too fast or to not, you know, lead with my stick or whatever, you know, and it was an interesting experience going through that with my mom. I have such a better, I don't know, empathy for what it must feel like to be a parent. And now, especially as a new parent, like I, I get it a hundred times over uh, that, you know, the fear and trepidation you feel for your child. Yes, indeed. For sure. Um, I, I, so as you continue through your recovery, at a certain point, you went back to swimming. How did that call to action come about? So I, I was really lucky that so I went uh, when I came back from Afghanistan. I went to Walter Reed, which is in Bethesda, Maryland. Within a few weeks, they decided um, there. I don't need to be in a place like Walter Reed. What I need is to be in a place that has resources for blind people. Walter Reed doesn't have that in spades. They have some, but they don't have a lot. A place that did have those resources was a VA down in Florida. Uh, in Tampa, which is near where I grew up in St. Pete. So I, I transferred to that facility. And then uh, there was an added benefit where once I was healthy enough, they let me, you know, I would be an inpatient during the week, Monday through Friday, doing various therapies and things like that. But on the weekend, when most of the staff wouldn't be there, I was allowed to go home to my childhood home in St. Petersburg. And the first weekend that I was home, that I was allowed home, they did sort of a celebration. It coincided with this event. It's like, they call it First Friday. Downtown, they have a thing where they lock off uh, a couple streets and they do sort of like a, a block party. And uh, they did a fundraiser for me and my family and celebrated me. My old swim team, a lot of people I knew from that community were there and they all came out and like, you know, bought a beer and hung out and they were all hugging me and excited to see me and uh, and it was a really great thing. And one of the people to come to that was my old swim coach. And he's hug. He gave me a hug, which was very unlike him. He was very not a not a huggy type of guy at that time. And he gave me a hug. And he's like, "It's great to see you." He's like, "Hey, you know, I gotta tell you, we're gonna have practice tomorrow. You want to come?" And I was like, "Yeah, that actually sounds oh. great. Like, I'd love the you know, North Shore pool, swim outside. Like, what could be better?" And uh, he was very nonchalant about it. And then I said, yeah, I'll see you at practice. And I, I went and told my mom, I was like, mom, would you, would you mind taking me to her swim practice? She said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll take you some practice. And I showed up and as though I had never left, Fred was on the pool deck, you know, just like I was when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. 
he's in his chair and he sh I show up and it's like, hey, Fred. And he's like, yeah, I've got lane four set aside for you. I've set up these pool noodles so you don't bump your head. And and here's a mask because your eyes are kind of a mess. You know, he gave me a scuba mask instead of goggles because I was still kind of raw at the time. And he, he's kind of said it like almost like these are your orders. <laughs> kind <laughs> of like, like it was like just as though he had, uh, you know, worked with a thousand other blind service members. He it was very nonchalant about it. I said, OK, yep. Yes, sir. I got my trunks and I'll, I'll go in and get in my lane. and I got my mask and it was such a cool feeling to just it was not a big thing. It was just normal. It was just like as though it had it always been. And I hopped in my lane and I swam back and forth. And as I would get within about an arm's length of the wall, I'd hit this pool noodle on my head and I would do a little bucket turn and go back the other way. And it was awesome. It was amazing. And it was just this feeling of freedom. Like I wasn't in a box. I wasn't chained to my hospital bed. I wasn't stuck. I was free. And it was awesome. Uh, yeah, and and of course, it seems that that love and that passion led you to get serious and really start training um, quite a bit. How explain to me then how a um, adaptive athlete, a blind a blind swimmer, is able to navigate not hitting the lane lines, not hitting the walls, etc. So first and foremost, the the adaption that is approved by the Paralympics is a teammate or a coach will stand on the side and use one of, you know, one of my blind canes. It's a, a you know, a stick that's about six feet long. And we put a tennis ball on the end. Mm -hmm. And as I approach the wall, they reach out and they tap me in the back, right, right, you know, right in between my shoulder blades with that tennis ball to indicate to me that I'm about six feet away from the wall. It's called tapping. And we, practice the tap over and over and over again, just like passing a baton and a track and field relay. And I do my flip off of that tap. So when my coach or my teammate taps me, I lean forward and flip every time. And it's really important for the tapper to tap me exactly in the same spot every time. And it's really important for me to trust them and just go ahead and flip. And sometimes you miss and you crash a little bit. And sometimes you're a little bit long. Um, but if you practice enough, you get that down, no problem. And then the other adaption that I do is um, I'm sure you and other age groupers are familiar with the fingertip drag drill, where you just drag your fingertips on the surface of the water to kind of keep your elbow high. Um, I kind of do fingertip drag drill perpetually. I'm always keeping my fingers down low. And that way, if on my arm recovery, if I touch the lane line, it means I'm over to the oh. that side too far. So if, if I touch the lane line, I need to get back away from the lane line. And I call it bending. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to steer because then you tend to, you know, just go ping pong to the other side. Mm -hmm. So I, I just try to misalign my shoulders and my hips just a little bit to ease back into the middle of the pool and then uh, keep on going. Oh, wow. Well, you, you made a, a rapid recovery and also a rapid improvement back to your, you know, similar to your old form of when you were training at the Naval Academy and you were selected as one of the uh, Paralympians to mm -hmm. attend the games in London in 2012. Um, two golds and a silver, unbelievable. Um, but it was the gold in the 400 free that was especially symbolic um, for your your life's journey. Um, explain to me why that is. So I lost my vision in Afghanistan on September 7th, 2011. Um, 
as we came to understand that I'd be going to the Paralympics, I'd be representing Team USA, we looked at the schedule of events and right away saw that my best event, the 400 meter freestyle, would be on September 7th, 2012. And I remember the moment my coach and I were talking about that when we found that out on the pool deck before practice one day and our both of our eyes got wide and we got goosebumps and we thought, what an incredible opportunity to be able to compete in an event that I was favored to win by 20 seconds on the day that I lost my vision. So we knew in advance that that was going to be a really special moment. But as we talked about earlier in this podcast about pressure, I felt an immense amount of pressure to make that story come true. I I, I knew the story was out there. I knew some people were talking about the story. You know, I think I, we always tend to overindulge in how much other people care. I think, you know, you mm. think that the world is watching in this particular moment. And like, yeah, some people are watching. There's a big, you know, there's 18,000 people in the stands, but it's not like everybody's watching, but it feels like that. It feels like you're at the center of the universe. And that if, if you don't make this story come true, it's going to be cast as a disappointment. I could do a best time and have a silver medal, but it would be a disappointment because I got a silver medal and not the gold. So I just felt like, man, I really got to get everything right. And at that point, you know, I kind of talked, I talked about transitioning to blind swimming as though it was easy. Certainly not. And I crashed a lot. I crashed a lot, a lot, a lot for that year. I used, I could come out of the water with bloody elbows and bloody hands all the time because I was racking myself on the lane line, going full speed and really just kind of dragging on the lane line sometimes. Uh, so it was not easy. And I thought, what happens if I goof up my start? What if I false start? What if I false start period? I don't even get get in the water. What if I goof up my start? I slip my feet slip and I, you know, biff the landing and I, you know, can't catch up. What if I just really eat it into the lane line? What if I miss one of my turns? What if I miscount? You know, there's all these what ifs. But I, you know, at a certain point, I remember walking out for that event and just finding a way to put all that aside and affirm in my mind that I was ready and that this was my moment and that I was going to make the most of this moment. And no one else had the perspective or the training or the experience that I had. And I remember diving in and just really having a gorgeous race for a blind swimmer. I think it was a gorgeous race. I hardly touched the lane line. I felt super smooth. You know, the feeling of when you like you put on a nice suit and you get a good shave and you're tapered, you dive in and you feel like you're just flying across the surface of the water. That's how I felt. I felt like I'm just gliding across. I don't even really feel like I got tired. I felt like, you know, obviously you look at the splits and I was tired. You know, I was not splitting the right exact thing, but the whole time I just felt like a superhuman. And I remember coming into the wall and eventually hearing my coach say that you won. The story came true. I won a gold medal on the exact year anniversary of the day I lost my vision. And for me, it meant that blindness isn't going to hold me back. I'm going to find a way to be as happy and as successful as I ever was. And what was more important at that moment in time was that my mom and my family and all my friends and my community were all watching in their different ways. You know, My mom and my family in the stands and my teammates in the military were watching from various webcasts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Virginia Beach, and San Diego. And they all got to see that blindness isn't going to hold me back. Don't worry about me. Don't pity me. Don't fret about me. Don't have doubts. 
everything's going to be fine. And I think that gold medal put an exclamation mark on that sentiment. Indeed, indeed. And you also began to realize the power of the Paralympic movement, right? Oh, explain, man. Explain, explain why it's important. Yeah, so I hardly had any exposure to the Paralympics before I lost my vision. I, I do remember I knew what it was almost expressly because Melissa Stockwell, who's now a dear friend and a, simultaneously a hero of mine, was in a an ad in a men's health magazine a long time ago when she was getting ready to go to Beijing for the Paralympics. Now, Melissa Stockwell was the first woman to be injured in Iraq that I know of. Uh, she lost her leg when an IED detonated on the outside of her Humvee and originally competed in Beijing as a swimmer and then uh, switched over to triathlon, was a world champion triathlon for a number of years and is still active with the um, U.S. Paralympic national team as a triathlete now. And uh, anyway, I say that all that to say I, I knew of Melissa and I, I had seen an ad with her in it. So I knew what Paralympics were, but I didn't have any idea what it was all about, what the you know, the gravity or the, you know, the the intensity of it was. Even as I was getting involved, I thought, oh, it's it's this nice sort of add on to the Olympics. Um, it, how fun will that be? But when I got there and I got to London and I walked around the village and I walked into that swimming arena, that's that same swimming arena that the Olympics had been in a few weeks prior uh, with 18,000 fans packing the stands, I was blown away. You know, I had swam a, a great career and I remember swimming in some big meets in front of some big crowds, but never, never like that. It was something really incredible. And then I came back after winning and I got to give a flag to the president, President Obama. I got to go on the road and start sharing the story and I see how excited people get and just really kind of like the power of the medal of how, you know, the, how inspirational it can be and how important it is, especially in the Paralympic side, because I think that society really does look at disability as a really negative and awful thing. You know, you see someone in a wheelchair and your reaction is to say, I'm sorry for you. You see someone who's tapping their blind cane and you say, I'm sorry for you. You see someone whose foot's shaking because they have cerebral palsy and you say, I'm sorry for you. And I don't think, I, I don't want to speak for everybody in the disability community, but speaking for myself, for sure, I don't want your pity. I don't want to be pitied. I don't want you to say you're sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm very happy. I'm an incredibly fulfilled uh, individual, uh, despite the fact that I can't see. I don't think about the fact that I can't see almost ever anymore. It's just who I am. I wake up and I do the things that I do. I get up at five and I make coffee and I drink my coffee and I read the news and I go and work out and then I go to school and I do my job and I come home and I hug my wife and I take care of my baby. And the fact that I'm blind doesn't play into my reality hardly at all. So I don't want people to be sorry for me. Don't, don't be sorry. Don't define me based on this one thing that you know about me. And I'm sure that's true for everybody in a wheelchair or whatever else. The magic of the Paralympics is that we see wheelchair racing. And we see wheelchair basketball and we see blind athletes playing goalball and we see Lex Gillette doing the long jump without mm. being able to see. It's really cool. And so now for generations of people who are Paralympic fans, they don't say they're sorry to blind people. They say, oh, you must, you know, you, you're like Lex Gillette or you're like Brad Snyder or are you a blind triathlete or maybe a blind ski racer or maybe a blind long jumper? It's completely reframed this relationship that we have with disability. And I'm really passionate about sharing that as much as possible. Yeah, you um, you say you say in your book um, that um, true greatness can only be achieved through cumulative effort 
from yourself, of course, and those around you, your family and team and community. Um, explain why that's so important, especially in the adaptive community. I think that what makes what makes the accomplishment feel really special for me, what I mean by true greatness is reflective of that moment that we talk about, that we just, that, that whole story, that whole arc, and it's the arc in the book, getting you to that moment of the alive day. Like I woke up or I, I, I won and I won exactly one year and I proved that uh, nothing's going to hold me back. But uh, the podium moment is not like a, it's not a heroic Brad story. It's a story about uh, this all of these people that came together through me in a sense in that moment uh the my team in Afghanistan the medic Kyle and my buddy Adam who you know got to me when I was blown up and got me up and got me to the helicopter where the pilot put himself his his flight crew and his aircraft at risk to land and take me to the hospital to the surgeons and her staff who put me back together to my mom to my siblings to the you know the the remarkable community that I'm a part of uh, that all had a role in getting me to that podium. And I know when I'm on that podium and my name's announced and our flag is raised and they're playing our anthem, that they all feel a sense of pride, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of joy, a sense of happiness because of their role in that, you know, getting me to the podium. So it wasn't just, it's not like Brad Snyder won a gold medal. It's like, all of these people played a role in helping Brad Snyder win a gold medal. And that's what makes it great. Not that I swam back and forth a bunch of times in us, you know, four minutes and 30 seconds or whatever it was. Uh, that doesn't mean anything. I can't even remember the time. Like it doesn't yeah. even matter. It, what mattered was all of those people had a hand in it and they were excited about it and they were prideful about it and they were inspired by it. Um, and I, I think it's really important uh, for the adaptive community because you know, without Paralympics, that sort of journey doesn't exist for a lot of people with disabilities. You know, a blind child uh, or a, a kid who, you know, loses their leg to cancer when they're 11. They don't have the same arc that Michael Phelps has or Simone Biles has, but they do through the Paralympics and they still have the ability to dream and they have the ability to build a team and get people excited about something and get helping them get there. And for it's important to note that for every one of me, there's another thousand blind people who were trying, mm. you know, they had the same dream and those thousand people all have a community of their own who are helping them along the way, who all take a sense of pride. And like, we tried and we made it a long way, but we didn't necessarily get there. But this whole pyramid uh, uh, of people is inspired and has been made, has been made better through this whole journey. And uh, it's tr just as true on the Paralympic side as it is on the Olympic side. And I'm, you know, proud of that. Um, and, Right at the beginning of, of the recording of this podcast, we heard from another one of your teammates, and that would be your service dog, Mr. T. Um, tell me about that relationship. Yeah, Mr. T is awesome. And I don't know if you just heard him grunt again. He's bored because he's like, Brad just talks about himself <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, I got Mr. T a year ago. Uh, a little over a year ago. He's my second guide dog. I had a my first guide dog, Gizzy, unfortunately passed right before COVID. And that was tough. And so COVID was actually kind of, I guess the, the nice part of COVID was it gave us, a, my wife and I, a year to mourn the death of Gizzy. But then as things were getting better, you know, uh, last year or so, 
and we had the vaccine and we're going to get back to work and we're going to get out of Zoom and out of our basements and all that, uh, I realized like I need to be able to get to my office. I need to get to school and uh, I can cane. Okay. But a guide dog really makes that awesome. So I can get from my house to my school in 20 minutes and uh, Mr. T helps me get there and he gets me, he walks me on the sidewalk. Uh, as we're crossing the street, he'll make sure that there's no cars coming. Um, he memorizes the route. He's, you know, I, I have an idea of the route, but it's kind of like, it's a team effort. If I miss a turn, sometimes he'll help me get back to the right turn and he helps us get there a little bit quicker. And it's nice to have a constant companion as, as well. So uh, Mr. T's my, my guide dog, my constant companion, and he's always at my feet getting me from point A to point B. I looked at your website when I was preparing for this interview, and on the homepage uh, is your mission. And what's so remarkable is after reading your book, I, I, I didn't, I've gotten to know you better through the course of our conversation, but I didn't, I, I didn't know you that well aside from reading your book. And it's so, your mission so strongly reminds me of all these lessons that we have talked about from your family, from your community, from your coach, um, that uh, I was just really struck by the um, how your mission was influenced by those around you. Yeah, uh, my mission is to empower the uh, my community's pursuit of happiness, and I think uh, that 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 comes from this idea that kind of going back, like the reason I share my story, you know, I uh, there's a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose in my life because of having kind of almost lost my life at the age of 27, and now I you know that added to the 16,000 meter practice or the hundred hundreds or whatever, I've come to recognize and understand that the, the, the experiences that have mattered the most to me who have been the most formative in shaping who I am have often been the hardest. Like I, there's a, there's a recognition that there's a, there's a good struggle out there. There's a, a, you know, we need, we need struggle. We need stress. We need pressure to make ourselves better. Um, and, my goal is to kind of share that as much as possible. I want, I want people to feel the happiness, the joy, the fulfillment that I feel. I want them to feel like they're carrying themselves with a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose the way I feel. And I want to be able to take from my background and offer the nuggets that might be helpful in that pursuit. Um, you know, sports as a way of life. Uh, even if I don't compete in the Paralympics anymore, my wife and I are going to work out every day because we love it because we, we, we want to make ourselves better. We love being fit. We love challenging ourselves. We love the struggle together. We know that our relationship is better because we struggle together. Um, you know, uh, knowing that life is always going to throw us curveballs, and we're going to need to be able to manage those stresses. So how do you put things back into perspective? Start with gratitude and, you know, uh, work your work your way through those challenges while always keeping an eye on uh, the 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 good parts of life. Like you said, like there, you know, sometimes life isn't always going to go the way that you planned, but there's always something to be thankful and grateful for. And if you can kind of keep your orientation focused on those things, you're always going to be happy and fulfilled. So, yeah, I I a I think it's important for everyone to kind of go through the process of deriving a mission statement. It, it gives you a sense of purpose. And for me. Um, my my goal is to empower the community through the things that I have learned that there's a good struggle out there. And through that good struggle, you can be uh, optimally happy and fulfilled. 
I have a final question for you. Uh, you were recently awarded the Distinguished Graduate Award by the Navy as a role model um, for upcoming midshipmen. Um, having plebes, future plebes and future soldiers study your life and what you've been able to do and your, your role as a, as a mentor, what does that mean to you? It means an awful lot. Um, that's, you know, I've won some awards out there and a lot of them are easier to accept. Like, uh, I don't know, it's not worth making an example, but the Distinguished Graduate Award was like difficult for me to accept because I remember going to the Naval Academy and seeing a picture of John McCain on the wall. And I knew John McCain's story. And John McCain is like the epitome of the Distinguished Graduate. He, uh, he's lived a life of service. He, he had lived a life of service and had, had been through a harrowing uh, experience in, in the Hanoi Hilton. And But that didn't slow him down. He just continued to double down and give everything, every drop he had for the benefit of our country. And uh, I remember thinking, I want to be like him. And that, that's part of the reason I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. If the Naval Academy is a place that shapes a guy like John McCain, then I want to be in that place. Uh, and then, so for that institution to hold me up and put my picture up on the wall in the same way that they did John McCain, I don't feel worthy, not necessarily. I don't know. I don't feel special. I don't feel like I've done anything extraordinary. I feel like I've just done my best at every node of my life to do the best, I guess, like to just make the most of that moment and try to make myself a little bit better and do what I think people would expect of me, you know, serve the community and be honorable and be virtuous and all of those things. Uh, so for at this point in my life, for the Naval Academy to say, you've done that and we want the brigade of midshipmen to look at you as an example is probably the greatest honor I'll ever receive. Uh, and while I don't feel worthy, it makes me, it gives me that, I guess, extra motivation and inspiration to say, okay, you know what? It's just like when I was voted team captain, I didn't feel ready then. I didn't feel like I was that guy. I didn't feel like I was the guy to strap on the, the captain's uniform and lead our team onto the pool deck against Columbia or whatever, but I did it. And afterward I felt very gratified. So now that if the Naval Academy is going to call me a distinguished graduate, then I will step into that and I will be the distinguished graduate. And I will make sure that I measure myself against you know, the legacy of all those other distinguished graduates like John McCain or David Robinson or uh, whoever else. And uh, so again, it's the deepest honor I'll ever receive, but now it kind of makes me double down on, I got to continue to be that distinguished grad with everything I do. And uh, I look forward to being that for the Brigade of Midshipmen. Yeah, uh, me too. And thank you for your powerful and thought-provoking ideas and stories. I'm really looking forward to following all your future endeavors and accomplishments. So thank you so much for being on Sports Life Balance. No, thank you so much, John. It's been a really great conversation and I appreciate uh, having this conversation with you. It's one of the deeper conversations we've had in a long time. <laughs> thank you. I find myself humbled by the sacrifices that Brad has made for all of us. General Douglas MacArthur said this about the men and women who defend our freedom. The soldier, above all others, prays for peace, for it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Brad, thank you for your service.
Fun fact about General MacArthur, he was the president of the then-called American Olympic Committee during the 1928 Games in Amsterdam. If you'd like to find out more about Brad Snyder's life, his book is called Fire In My Eyes, and his website is at bradsnyder, all one word, dot U-S. I'm John Moffat, and thank you for joining us for Sports Life Balance. If you've enjoyed Brad's stories, please take a moment to give us your five-star review and go ahead and share it with a friend. Until next time, be well, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sports Life Balance.